a bigger picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. And I've been joined for the bigger picture by Tim Evans, who's Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in uh, London. Uh, Tim, we're going to try and cover three topics. And where where are we going to to begin? Well, I think the first thing is we have to probably start with the royal family, because um, obviously the Duke uh, and Duchess of uh, Sussex have have been in the headlines in recent days. And um, what Harry and Meghan have said has had a huge impact, not only the royal family uh, and and in the conversation the country is having, but they've also had a huge impact um, on the Queen, who is, after all, our head of state. I had Uh, a a news flash just before we started speaking from the uh, Telegraph um, uh, saying... This is the head the headline, obviously, of a story I haven't read yet. The monarchy has not been this unpopular in the US since burning down the White House. Ah, well, there we are. Um, Yes. Um, uh, Well, we're going to actually touch on some history. We're not going to quite go back that Mm. far with the arrival of the foot guards and the burning of the White House and and then the move up. uh, The burning of the White House was partly in in response to all kinds of things that had taken place in Canada, but ancient history. Um, But but, yes, it it did make us quite unpopular at the time. It did indeed. And and, uh, our cousins across the water, um, lovers or haters, who knows? But the the key thing is that... um, that when it comes to governance and, and political economy, I, I don't think we should forget that many of the northwestern democracies in Europe, the northwestern democracies that also have constitutional monarchies, happen to be some of the most prosperous and stable countries. And one of the really interesting thing about royalty um, uh, when it comes to political economy and, and governance and statecraft is that royalty, of course, rather like uh, looking at the, the left, the political left, rather like the cooperative or, 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 or the mutual movements, they have um, quite long time preferences. Politicians come and go, um, and and we have elections every four or five years, and often governments try and work on the basis of their manifestos and the electoral cycle of 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 of, of parliaments and governments. But with royal families, of course, royal families, like cooperatives and mutuals, they think longer term, um, rather like farmers do. Um, A farmer is unwise if they want a sustainable farm to kill, for example, all the livestock in one one go. What they try and do is they invoke time and they churn the livestock uh, over time through that time preference uh, to make the farm sustainable indeed to grow uh, its capital, its livestock and, and, and its benefits all and i think that the 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 fact that royalty still has a huge impact in places like britain sweden norway and other countries and that these countries are indeed stable democracies um is really intriguing um uh and intriguing because of this dimension of time preference in economics uh we hear a lot don't we from friends on the left who say that one of the problem with capitalism or the stock market is that often companies have to report their numbers every month they have to report every quarter and that often that time preference that very short term time horizon puts huge pressure 
on boards and executives to make certain decisions. And perhaps you've heard the phrase to think short term. And there are lots of people on the left. I think John McDonnell is one who argues that um, if only companies could operate in a more cooperative or, or mutualist fashion with shared ownership, um, and did not have to work in the short-term numerical universe as required by the City of London, that this would somehow uh, encourage wiser uh, investment with an eye on the longer term. And it's long intrigued me that this dimension of time impacts economics, it impacts investment, it impacts governance, and that when it comes to statecraft, royalty um, often has a similar time preference for example, to the desires of the mutualist left and John McDonnell in industry. I wonder how Mr. McDonnell will react to that if I said, do you realize monarchies have, have the same long-term view uh, as, as your desired cooperatives sometimes do and your mutuals do um, in, in industry? And for example, we're, we we're talking, of course, about modern monarchy because, you know, we, I know we're not going back into history, but there was time when monarchs couldn't necessarily look very far ahead, or at least they were looking over their shoulder most of the time. Well, they were, but what was interesting was that their decisions uh, were still uh, very much based on intergenerational um, uh, thinking. That, yes, that when they were making cal calculations about war or violence or the use of force, they were often thinking in dynastic and long term ways about how this would play out, play out for their own interests, their alliances, their families, and all the rest of it. And intriguingly, Tim, sorry, sorry I'm slightly no, off topic fine. here, but intriguingly, I realise that despite what the left often say about capitalism, is that there are relatively few people in the business world who are incredibly wealthy who have inherited it. It's, 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 it's very rare that companies survive long enough for dynasties to establish. I mean, we think it's not, but that's actually the opposite to the perceived case. That's true. And if you look at the data, for example, on family businesses, um, then you find that however successful a business might appear to be, uh, and even if it is handed on and it survives, um, time uh, seems to be a big factor here. And I think I'm right in saying that the idea that you can have a successful business and hand it on, and, and a business of any size, and hand it on to a third generation, you're down to single-figure numbers of the probability of that mm. succeeding. Very occasionally you hear of businesses that you know, are down to the seventh or eighth generation. Um, when you hear those, you're down to a two or three percent yes. chance. And they tend not to be groundbreaking businesses. That's exactly. Yes. You tend to be talking about things like farmers or, or I don't know, farriers or blacksmiths or very niche craft, you know, potters or whatever, uh, where you might have that. But um, you're right. And so for me, this whole issue of governance and time, be it in economics, be it in farming, be it uh, involving royalty, the left, the right, I find it really, really interesting. Um, and I find the data around it really interesting. Um, Yes, um, I suppose one has to talk about what's going on at the moment. Clearly, um, overseas, um, people are not necessarily perceiving the monarchy in, in um, uh, an impressive light. Over here, the initial polls anyway seem to be showing that a, a majority was tending to side with the monarchy. But presumably, for the, by and large, for the monarchy, one would have thought that, you know, it, squalls like this can sort of be ridden out. I mean, the Queen has had, you know, at least one Annus Horribilis in the past. She may yet view this as being um, another. Um, yes. But that presumably is the idea that you know, she thinks long term. 
Yes, and and that's the sense you have, not only from the institution, but also, for example, watching the Netflix series The Crown. Um, what The Crown is itself an institution, uh, slightly separate in some ways from the individuals. Um, um, you know, The Crown goes on, um, whereas the institution will falter at times and, and meet all manner of bumps. And and I think that's the point. The I mean, the really interesting thing for me, again, is that we've seen, haven't we, in, in, in the last hundred years, uh, the royal family have these seismic bumps in the road and these, these shifts. And we saw it with Wallace Simpson and the king in the 1930s. Um, we saw it with Diana Spencer. And, um, and we're living another one of those unusual moments now. Um, what I think is interesting, as I reflect, for example, on 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 what happened in in and around 1936, is I mean, let's not forget that well, there was a moment where uh, the then king was briefly beguiled uh, by national socialism and had a, a a seemingly bizarre relationship with the far right and and with the Nazis. And 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 in one way, I think it's interesting that um, you know. Uh, the, 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 the history could be read in a subjective way as, as Wallace Simpson having saved us from some of that, whereas Britain went on to its finest hour of standing alone and fighting Nazism and fighting racism and, and eventually going on and triumphing. And of course, during the Second World War, in economic terms, um, Bletchley Park didn't just do what it was doing in the intelligence community, but it, it also led to the world of modern computing and what is now the digital age and the digital economy. And so, you know, out of all that disaster, not only did a military victory come, but research and development in economic terms, which led to so much of the modern world and the fourth industrial revolution. Similarly, um, with the sad death of, uh, of the Princess of Wales, um, really just within a few months of Tony Blair becoming prime minister, um, for all the blips and all the problems that, that that presented and all the all the the mistakes made and all the, the problems of the royal family at that time, and you remember the unpopularity in certain days early on in that tragedy, um, uh, Tony Blair was successful in re, sort of putting Britain through a strategic refresh. There was the rise of Cool Britannia. Um, uh, he went on to win three elections. And indeed, you remember that early on, um, in the early noughties, he was able to invest uh, a huge amount of money, um, more money in the NHS. And that investment uh, uh, has somewhat helped us through this recent pandemic. So my point is, that even with the death of Diana, um, it was a huge blip in the road, but the institution carried on. And, and we had a government that was able to do uh, some important, and I would suggest some good things with Cool Britannia, more empowering, more inclusion, and investing in in our healthcare. And I, I would say, uh, in the same vein, that uh, for all the trials and tribulations of of this current uh, episode, um, it will be interesting, won't it, to see as we come out of the pandemic and, and as the royal family try to get to grips with all the things that have been thrown up uh, by uh, Harry and Meghan. Uh, you know, what will be the sunnier uplands? What will what will be the better things that come in our political and economic life? We have uh, the government now talking about huge investment in infrastructure, about getting rid of taxes for domestic travel on airlines. I believe Boris has even 
commissioned a report looking at a possible tunnel. I don't know if it's a rail tunnel or a road tunnel, I, d- I don't know, uh, between mainland Britain and uh, Northern Ireland. Um, what's interesting about past um, uh, royal difficulties and, and tragedies is that they've often actually been followed up uh, quite rightly, as often happens with human affairs, by by all kinds of successes mm. and advances and progress. You talked right back at the beginning about the uh, northwestern European monarchies and how they tend to be associated with countries that are relatively prosperous. Is that, is there a direct link? Do you feel, or is that just coincidence? Well, the answer is I'm not sure, but um, even if it's a correlation, it's a notable one uh, that countries like Britain, like Sweden, like Norway, um, uh, Denmark, you know, these are particularly inclusive nations. They, they, you know, they include a a bizarre mixture of, of modes of production. You know, they're partly royal with, uh, you know, some of the, some of the, um, some of the sugar uh, mixed into the ingredients, therefore feudalism. Uh, they're also liberal market societies. They all have vibrant and dynamic economies, quite successful normally. Um, they're also parliamentary democracies. And again, they're generally thought of as being quite stable um, and quite successful. And so they seem to meld and fuse together um, sort of elements of socialist welfare elements of parliamentary democracy, elements of those historic elements of, of, uh, of, um, of, of sort of the romance of royalty and the glamour of royal weddings and, you know, and pageantry and all of that. And, and that seems to be, um, in terms of basic ingredients, to create something that does appear pretty stable. Now, you can have other places in the world, um, Thailand, for example, where you don't have perhaps the degree of democracy you enjoyed there, but you have monarchy, mm. or you can have uh, presidential systems. Um, and, you know, and I'm not saying they're perfect, and I'm not saying they're ever uh, that these, I know that Sweden or Britain will always be timelessly stable. All I'm saying is we seem to be coming from a time, certainly of the last one or 200 years, where the melding of state support um, of circulating elites in a democracy with the sort of time longer term view, the time preference and stability afforded by royalty has stood this corner of Europe in good stead. Tim, thank you. Time for us to take a break and we'll switch topics. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. in conversation with Tim Evans, who's Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Uh, Tim, we're going to change topics now. What are you going to pick? Well, I'm going to look at what is going to become of Boris Johnson's agenda. Um, Most winning uh, leaders um, uh, become known for some kind of policy hook that becomes a mantra that's associated with them. You know, for all the time that Harold Wilson was prime minister, uh, I think actually the one thing, and he knew it at the time, interestingly, that he will be remembered for, it's not actually keeping Britain out of the Vietnam War or or, or any economic woes or the devaluation of the pound in 67. He'll always be known actually as the prime minister who had the vision of of building and creating the open university. And, and 
we remember, don't we, with um, when Clinton became uh, president in the United States, um, his mantra uh, was very much um, about um, it's the economy stupid. Mm-hmm. If if a Democrat leader tries to overtax the economy or or try and overinflate the public sector, they won't be elected. They they won't be they won't be um, elected, and they have to keep a degree of fiscal conservatism mm-hmm. alongside their sort of progressive liberalism. Um, and, and for Tony Blair, uh, the mantra was education, education, education. And well, the I'm going to suggest that Boris's mantra. Uh, uh, is going to be infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure. And there are many, many reasons for this. Um, uh, The first thing is, I don't mean by infrastructure simply a railway or or a road. I mean infrastructure, everything from 5G to um, a a tunnel, which he's interested in in building, having dug uh, between the north of England um, and, and, and Northern Ireland. Um, the recent decision by the government to reduce uh, taxes on domestic uh, flights uh, to encourage uh, greater connectivity. Uh, I, I think for Boris Johnson that he's very interested. He's rather beguiled by infrastructure because for him, um, one of the things that number 10 can impact uh, of the, the, the human body that is the United Kingdom is its arteries, its blood vessels. And I think he believes that if they can focus and get those things right, then somehow these blood fuse vessels um, will build on the musculoskeletal framework of the nation and help um, to boost the economy, to unleash potential and having more people and things and ideas moving around. And this will grow to growth. And that's the best way through growth that you will manage the debt and the, and the woes and the challenges we face. So I think that he really is uh, uh, really interested in infrastructure, uh, whether it's uh, the Northern Powerhouse, the Pennine Railway that has to be upgraded, HS2, uh, Heathrow, new runway that I think he really is interested in all of it. And I think there are two reasons. One is the economic reason I just alluded to. It's about going for growth. But the other is it's about, um, I think, reuniting uh, the different constituent parts of the United Kingdom. I think the Prime Minister believes that if you can move quickly and travel quickly, for example, from Cardiff to Edinburgh and London to Cardiff and Dublin and, you know, involve interconnect the, the various cities around those and the towns, um, as I say, the lifeblood, the arteries of, of these nations, you will actually um, uh, uh, bring together uh, economically, culturally, uh, uh, a more reunited and reintegrated United Kingdom. And I think he thinks this is his way of overcoming um, the sort of devolutionary and um, uh, signed a, 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 a sort of uh, tearing effects of of um, of 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 Tony Blair's uh, devolution agenda. So I think that really what we're going to see from Boris is a lot of talk around infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure. He, he wrote recently that it's currently quicker to get a train from Cardiff to Paris than from Cardiff to Edinburgh, and you know that seems wrong and should be corrected but one of the big problems about infrastructure is it is incredibly long term whereas perhaps some of the threats to the united kingdom are rather more short term indeed but of course um if you can do things like 
Um, there's a proposed tunnel which is quite advanced uh, 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 that will unblock the A303 at Stonehenge, and that's you know something that's been around forever. Um, uh, you know, as a debate, it's been around for decades. If you can really get another runway going at Heathrow, if you can carry on with HS2, if you can find innovative forms of investment and finance for these projects uh, from partners overseas, for example, I don't know, the, uh, the Qatari investment guys um, and friends in Asia and all the rest of it, if you can bring in new forms of funding or indeed innovative forms of funding, new types of bond and things like that for these huge and expensive projects, then then you can actually have a pipeline. You can have a, at the front end things that are shovel ready, mm. like the Stonehenge Tunnel, like HS2, which is already being built. But also you can signal to um, the companies, to workers and to the market that, that these things are also coming on. Because, of course, markets are very good at pricing in the effects early on the beneficial effects of lots of these projects <clears throat> there are many examples where as soon as the market knows a railway or a piece of infrastructure is going to be built for example well property um will go up in you know around the requisite uh, stations and terminuses um markets yeah, we saw them very... at crossrail didn't we exactly exactly yeah. so but but the key thing is you know up until recently people i think were wondering that when the pandemic uh uh start the effects of it start to um uh take us to the edge of the tunnel where we're really confronted with the light and we've got to think about what are we going to do as a nation what is the response of the government going to be i think that um the 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 government think they've invested an awful lot in the nhs they've got to get social care right and they've you know they've got to face as we've discussed lots of the the challenges in the information space in the digital age with defense but the real thing I think they want to make their name on, build their reputation on, and will have a huge impact on that levelling up agenda and maintaining the pressure on the Labour Party is to reunite the country, to open up those arteries, particularly in the north of England, up in Scotland uh, and, and with Ireland and Wales, to open these areas up. It's not to carry on focusing, as so many governments of all colours have done, of all stripes have done, on the southeast of England. Um, yes, I mean you talk about the the Stonehenge Tunnel, and that's been you know thought of for ages. I mean I grew up in the northeast of England. I know you never venture north of Watford Gap, um, but ever since I was a little boy, they talk about uh, turning the A1, which is the main route up the east of the country, into Scotland. It's still a single carriageway for a large part of it. I mean it's utterly utterly ludicrous. But that's been going on for at least forty years. They've been discussing that. Yeah. Yeah. I think there are plans now to do it for some of it, but not all of it. Yeah. I mean, and when you compare to, you know, our continental cousins, it seems utterly, utterly bizarre. Absolutely. And of course, there was a time when everyone said that it would be impossible for a conservative government uh, to build 350,000 council houses per year, as actually happened under Harold Wilson. Mm. Many people no doubt told Harold Wilson that it was a really rum or bad idea uh, to build something um, that was so in tune with the coming technology of television and video, as it was back then, and now the internet, of the Open University. And you're right, there are many people who have said, oh, you can't build this runway, or you mustn't build a high-speed railway. Uh, or, you know, there are lots of people who wag their fingers and, and, and the naysayers and say, can't do. Mm. But 
but the people who are winning prime ministers and the people who are re-elected are the people who face down the naysayers. You know, many people told Margaret Thatcher that she couldn't open up British industry to more competitive global forces. She did. There were many people who said that you couldn't actually invest in a public service in the NHS uh, so that it spends much more money uh, akin to the sort of money that's spent in GDP terms by our partners on the continent. Yet he did. Um, and he did it to an extent, even in defiance of Gordon Brown. If you remember, he went on the television, said he was going to do this, and he hadn't even told Gordon Brown that he was going to make that spending commitment. And and then there was a, a row, but Blair got his way, and that extra money did go into the NHS. And, and, and so the really successful politicians do do this. They put to bed policy areas and issues that have been dogging the country um, or that many people say cannot be done for many, many decades. Now, I had no idea if Boris is going to be successful. I had no idea if he's going to dig these tunnels, put these railways in, expand airports, um, usher in the green economy, get everyone on 5G and, and, and have the whizzy infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure that I think he wants. But but I I am sincere when I say I think he's that's what he's going to try for, and I think he has economic and electoral reasons to do it. I also think um, that he got a taste for this sort of thing when he was the mayor of London, and when he said, you know, I want to bring back the double decker bus as Michael. Yes. He quite likes buses, trains, planes, boats. You know, he likes um, slightly boys' toys. I have to say. Yes. He also has a propensity for eye-catching initiatives, doesn't he? Yes. I mean, almost, you know, to some extent, you think the idea about the, you know, connecting um, Scotland to Northern Ireland, either by tunnel or by bridge, is, is that sort of thing. I mean, one doesn't want to compare it too much to Churchill, though I'm sure he'd like to be compared to Churchill, but you, you keep thinking of Churchill and the funnies, and the fact that, you know, any scientist with a mad idea during World War Two came to Churchill, he'd stand a very good chance that Churchill would say yes. Yes. And in the end, actually, some of those did extremely well. But yes. Churchill had the same thing. He would have these wild enthusiasms. Yes. And, and, you know, I think there was a time when Boris was mayor of London. He announced the double-decker pass. People thought it was going to be, didn't they? They thought initially it could be some of Churchill's funnies. Yes. Um, at, at the other end of the scale, of course, the most audacious politician was clearly Kennedy, when Kennedy announced that, that the United States was going to put uh, uh, a, yes. a human being on the moon. Now, yes. somewhere between the gradations of Churchill's funnies and all those rather comical, slightly dad's army um, boffin-type weapons, bouncing bombs and, and you know, oversized Catherine wheels and all those wonderful funnies, yes, yes. and landing on the moon. Uh, Boris has got a record of his, of his, of his double-decker bus, and he clearly, wants, um, he clearly wants to be somewhere between landing on the moon and, and Churchill's funnies. But that's the point. I think he's one of those politicians. The genius, of course, was that Kennedy... Um, had the audacity, and he was also blessed. He had the economic might to do all those things, you know, to to get the Apollo missions and and to land on the moon. Um, uh, Boris does not have an economy where he's able to do that. But 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 let's not joke that that Boris Kelly is also interested uh, in those spaceports and in the coming private space revolution, um, and he wants Britain to be part of that, and he wants there to be a spaceport maybe down in the southwest, maybe near Newquay, one up in Scotland, uh, and that's all part of his sort of um, infrastructure agenda. And if he wants to get two terms. Um, then, well, a lot of it wouldn't be finished, but an awful lot of it would be underway. And that would be one an enormous legacy. Um, uh, and it means he would really go down in the history books. Yeah. 
Tim, thank you. Let's switch to our final topic. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. is in conversation with Professor Tim Evans, who's Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, what's our final topic for today? Well, our final topic um, is really about Andrew Bailey, uh, the Governor of the Bank of England, and uh, a speech that he gave recently to the Resolution Foundation. I, I guess, Simon, uh, to slightly counter and despite everything I've said previously in this interview, I, it could go under the, the heading, it's the economy, stupid, because of course the reality is um, if 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 um, if the economy uh, or, or our money goes haywire, then, um, then 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 Britain will be in trouble. And Andrew Bailey uh, has signalled um, in his recent talk that increasingly uh, the risks to the economy, or, or from a central banker point of view, the, the risks are what he calls two-sided. Um, that uh, it could be. Um, that as we come out of this rapid, as we come out of this uh, uh, pandemic, and 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 the, the the bank is pretty certain they think there will be a rapid recovery. They think there will be, you know, uh, uh, quite a hefty increase in growth. That people will bounce back. That the that the money that Rishi and the taxpayer have invested and furlough schemes, all that, really will have incubated quite successfully lots of businesses. And that when things open up, the growth will be dramatic. The bank thinks uh, that, that that there is clear evidence that that uh, inflation um, could be sustainable at around the two percent target, although they could overshoot that, and of course it might become um, it get, might go higher. And they see that as a risk, not as a huge risk, but it's something they're mindful of, and they're mindful of it because if inflation really does start to um, gather pace, um, then um, that could have a huge impact on pressure on the bank to raise the base rate, the interest rate, and that would indeed have a huge impact in turn in, um, well, not only business um, and those that have borrowed, but also a huge impact on the government budget overall. The other risk, uh, however, um, that, uh, that that he mentioned was the, 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 the talk that there has been a lot in the last two years of the risk of there being negative interest rates um, that somehow um, um, that uh, that they have to tighten policy and that if rapid spending growth uh, increases rate inflationary pressures they'll be somewhere between you know in increasing interest rates or if that doesn't happen and if there's you know if if, if in their sense there has to be a stimulation of, of, of consumer expenditure and they move to negative growth um, that the, 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 that could also have an impact and because it would in a sense decapitalize our economy people you know if they're robbed of their savings if they're incentivized to spend because their money's going to become worth less tomorrow um, then that would undermine uh, uh, capital and the potential for investment but the really interesting thing is he says that although he's honest about you know, those are the two polar winds that they're kind of those are the two gusts that they're sailing between that he thinks interestingly um, the risks for both those are while well, they're there that they are they're outliers uh, that that this crisis has made it less likely I think to have negative uh, interest rates um, and I think the expectation is that we will have some inflation 
but it won't be so high as requiring an interest rate rise. And the other thing I think just generally, and you're picking it up from the Telegraph and, and other media, is there is an expectation uh, that when interest rates do eventually go up, they will probably, and this is fingers crossed, go up to around the 5% mark, um, but that we won't really see the first interest rate rise uh, until the end of maybe next year. And uh, that seems to be where, 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 where Andrew where Andrew Bailey and, and his colleagues at the Bank of England currently are. So it, it's hoping for a middle course, a little bit of inflation up to 2%, but not too much. Um, and a sense that hopefully they're going to have to move away from their scenario planning, their risk assessments around the need for negative interest rates. Yes, and you can say governments always like a little bit of inflation because it helps inflate away their, their debts, but sometimes you can't really control it. I mean, you and I, are, well, you're younger than me, but we can remember a time when inflation seemed virtually out of out of control, and you have to look at commodity prices and particularly oil prices, but lots of other commodities in the last year, and really wonder whether it is going to be that easy to control inflation and what the problems will be, because if inflation does rise, the level of indebtedness around the world is so much greater than it was last time we saw um, any reasonable inflation. It's, it, you know, the problems are going to be that much greater. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. we're talking the, the wages of fear. The lorry is catching, is carrying a lot of nitroglycerin and, uh, you know, too many bumps, it'll go off. You're, you're absolutely right. And of course, uh, another concern, which I think will have, you know, is relevant to all of this, is um, the stimulus package that Joe Biden uh, yes. is clearly successfully pushing through uh, Washington. Um, you know, that's 1.9, uh, a 1.9 trillion dollar stimulus package. It is absolutely huge, um, and the impact that that has um, uh, is difficult to predict. And there are people, uh, Ben Bright, writing in the Telegraph, is one of them who thinks that an awful lot of very eminent economists think that, that, that while this stimulus package is in some ways to be welcomed, um, and the other, it runs the risk of simply being too big and it will, uh, you know, it will, it will lead to too rapid a heating of the economy very, very quickly. And that, that, that heat, uh, could itself have very damaging consequences, um, uh, there are lots of economists now, people who are pro-stimulus, they're Keynesians, they're pro-stimulus, but they think that the package is actually too big um, and all the rest of it. Uh, of course, if you're dealing with American uh, economics or American presidents in the economy, you've always got to remember that they have such a different electoral cycle and it will only be with a blink of an eye that suddenly the president is turning his attention. Can you believe it to the midterms? And mm. You have to wonder, you know, this sort of oceanic sum of money that is being um, created into existence by the flick of a central bank computer. Um, um, uh, if if this money isn't actually not only designed to create a mini boom, but to uh, set the Democrats on a fair wind um, for uh, another win in the midterm elections. Uh, but these are risky strategies and when i was young when we were young simon a million to mention a million was a lot of money and then in the 80s in the 80s to talk over 100 million if the gov any government was spending 100 million it was a lot and then by the end of the 90s everyone was talking about billions you yes. know 
Which um, also themselves have changed because a exactly. million in the UK used to be a million million. Now it isn't. It's a thousand. It's a million, thousand. As the Americans have it. That's right. But now everything, as a friend of mine said to me, who's not an economist, he's, he's actually a graphic designer. He said, Tim, you're a professor. When did everything start to come in trillions? And there's something in that. It tells us about the nature of money, about the sort of creditist and inflationist system um, uh, that all of this reality is built on. And where's it going? Yes. I'm, I'm quite intrigued because when you talk about the short termism of the American political cycle, you can't help feeling to hark back to what you said right at the beginning. What they need is a constitutional monarchy. Well, if only I, they'd been more far sighted. And if, and um, and well, it seems the opinion polls are moving in the wrong direction <laughs> for that form of governance to uh, to be becoming popular. Um, well, perhaps we... Harry can take the job. Well, there we are. Yes, <laughs> yes. Or maybe maybe Meghan could become Queen of the United Queen States. Who knows? Uh, in these wonderful days, where anything could go. Tim, thank you so much indeed. Um, we've covered an awful lot today. Uh, that's Tim Evans, who's Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. And we'll be back in a fortnight's time for more In the Bigger Picture. The Bigger Picture. Going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.